welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we've got the big one. The book I've been waxing lyrical about for months now, The Last House on Needless Street. It's the third novel by our guest, Katrina Ward. So I received this last autumn, and it's been a long wait to talk about it. It's got a strange publication schedule. It comes out in the UK tomorrow, 18th March, from Viper Books. But it's not actually out in North America until quite a bit later in the year. Now, it's absolutely worth waiting for, but if you can't or you don't want to wait, then this is one that's absolutely worth international shipping as well. As much as I love the book, it's it's also probably the hardest interview that I've done so far for the show, because the entire novel is so intricately balanced, it's like secret upon secret, that even to talk about it is to risk spoilers. As you'll hear, I, I do let Kat guide me on how best to skirt the issue, and I think we just about get away with it. It's been a hell of an edit, though. In a nutshell, and that's all I can do, it's a book about a serial killer, his strange cat, about missing children, and the secrets unearthed in the titular last house. I'm saying nothing more. I I really enjoyed reading the book, and, and you can also hear Kat's excitement about it, but she also gives me a lot of great anecdotal background to supplement the novel, from her own encounter with something spooky in her house in Dartmoor to her obsession with Ted Bundy. And that latter does bring me to an important point. So I normally feel little need to give trigger warnings on this show. As we actually say during this interview, having a horror audience generally means you can assume people come to listen with at least some expectation of dark shit. But, and it's a big but, It's been a fraught, tragic week here in the UK. So for those who don't know, this week has seen the particularly awful murder of Sarah Everard. And it's occasioned a loud and and much needed conversation about the huge double standards when it comes to women's personal safety as compared to men's. As such, I think it's only right that I mention that this week's episode features a lot of conversation about killers and violence against women in particular. We recorded the interview several weeks ago, and I did think about delaying the release, but to be honest, I don't think it's fair to Kat, considering the schedule is designed to coincide with the publication of her novel. Plus, I do think that we treat the subject with respect and the appropriate amount of horror But I still thought it was wise to warn listeners, you know, just in case you've had enough of the topic for a bit. So, all that said, let's talk about what may be the most significant horror novel since Paul Tremblay's A Head Full of Ghosts. Let's walk down a street in the Pacific Northwest, all the way down to the end where the trees begin. There's a house there, and it bears watching. Let's talk scared. So hi Kat and thanks for joining us on Talking Scared. How do we find you today? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm really, really well. I've um I've just come from signing 1,700 hardback book copies of uh, The Last House on Needless Street. So I'm, I, I'm sort of in a bit of an altered state, uh, <laughs> kind of dreamy, but really well. Yeah, thank you. That sounds like the hardest day's work I can imagine. Wh- whereabouts in the country are you at the minute? Where are we speaking to you from? I'm in London. 
uh, where uh, where I live. And um, I mean, like everyone else, it's you know, containment and isolation are very much on my mind. Hopefully, we're um, we're uh, we're reaching the end of it. But it's um, yeah, strange days. Yeah, it does seem to be tiptoeing towards the tulips a little bit. But yeah, fingers crossed. As you've already mentioned, you're here to talk about your new novel, The Last House on Needless Street. Let me get this right. It's due for publication in the UK by Viper Books on March 18th, yes, I believe. And then it's coming out in North America quite a lot later in the year. Yes, September 28th with 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 uh, Tor, with Nightfire, which is a new imprint of, of Tor books. Oh, we're going to actually have Emily Hughes on the show in the summer. She works for Tor. Oh, She's going to come on to talk about the year so far in horror. So I'm building a relationship with them. Uh, but I'm delighted to have you on to talk about this book. I mean, as as regular listeners will know, I've been blowing the trumpet about this for <laughs> for quite a few weeks now. It feels kind of mad that it's only just about to go on sale because I feel like I've been aware of it forever. If, imagine how I feel. It's not indeed. It's 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 been it's been a long run up, and um, I've been so excited about it coming out for so long. I don't actually know how, what a state I'll be in on publication day. Um, <laughs> and we're lucky enough to have a good run up, you know, to and, and some early support from some amazing people. So that was, I mean, ugh, very exciting. Yeah, Stephen King came out, didn't he, and said that it was the most exciting thing he's read since Gone Girl. I mean, can you imagine when Stephen King says it about your book? It's just, I mean, it's one of those moments in your life that just changes it. Um it's a personal and as well as professional sort of uh, landmark, you know. I've, <laughs> I'm so lame. I even put it in my calendar as, you know, um, the day the day he tweeted about it. I put it in my calendar so I could always sort of sort of remember it, you know, when the day comes around each year. Which is, I don't know. I think I think I think it's worth commemorating. It's a, Just a little huge, bit, yeah. Yeah, it's a huge moment. And you know, I was I was raised and you know weaned, as it were on his books so it's it feels like a kind of ex- a strange uh, fulfillment of of like all of that you know childhood sort of longing and stuff it's really it's really exciting it, yeah I can imagine it I had a similar conversation with CJ Tudor um oh, yeah. when when King kind of pushed her first novel The Short Man and she yeah, was yeah. kind of equally gleeful. I can't imagine it. I mean, I'm, I'm an obsessive Stephen King fan, so I think I just melt into a puddle. But it is very well-deserved praise. Oh, thank you. M- my accolades and, and, and applause will be very small fry compared to his, but yeah, I love this book. I have, though, been a little bit worried about talking about <laughs> yes. it because, I said, as we've mentioned before we started recording, it's a very, very narrow tightrope walk to tread this one without giving too much away so i'm at a loss for us to discuss it without giving something away. it's like a perfect machine where every secret is kind of predicated on another secret it's like dominoes or a gordian knot so we'll do our best to weave our way through it um and the edit button may be our friend on this one before i massacre anything i'm going to let you tell us what we need to know about the last house on needless street the last house on needless street is about uh, Ted, who's a lonely man who lives at the end of Needless Street, and the road ends in the great Pacific wild forests of um, Washington State, and Ted lives alone in the house with his daughter, his 11-year-old daughter Lauren, and his very, very strange cat, Olivia, who dif- disapproves of him quite significantly. 
Um, in the area, children have been going missing for years, um, unexplained, unsolved disappearances. And Dee, whose sister vanished by a nearby lake some years ago, comes to believe that um, Ted has something to do with it. So she moves into the vacant, empty house next door and begins to sort of, uh, you know, keep up surveillance on him, um, wait, seeing if she can find definitive proof that he is the man who took her sister. And so it, uh, things really kick off when, when Lauren, Ted's daughter, herself goes missing. It, that sounds like something you've practised, better to say that without... <laughs> I have to, I have to, I have to, because you, you like... As you say, it's so easy to just tread outside the lines and say something about it, which I think would diminish a reader's enjoyment if they knew it already. Very much so, yeah, because it's in the the realm of something like The Usual Suspects, where once you know it, you can't unknow it, and then, you know, a little bit of the potency is lost. I've got to admit that I I made the awful mistake Mm. of, of the book fell open and I saw one word and one word alone in the um the, you kind of included like a reading list on some of the subject matter that's true yeah, yeah um and i saw one word in that in one title of one of those oh, books no. and i was like i feel that may have given me but even knowing that i still could have had no idea how far how much further you took that theme yeah we're already being a little bit coy now aren't we so let me yeah. ask you a, let, let me ask you a broad question i always like to start mm. off broadly I'm not going to ask you the, the, the worst question to ask an author is where'd you get your ideas? I hate that, but it, in this one, I'm always I'm always intrigued. What was the genesis for this book? What was the very first spark that came to you? Two ideas which really took up residence in my mind for uh, for a while. Well, the first one was I was sort of fascinated by the relationship between serial killers and their pets. Like Dennis Nielsen had a dog uh, called Bleep, um, and that his only concern after his arrest was that the dog be taken care of. It's so interesting to me that someone who whose feelings can range to, into the monstrous like that can also find great attachment to an animal. So that was really interesting to me. Um, and uh, in the book, obviously, we have a very stern and disapproving little talking, little black talking cat. Um, and... There's the relationship between her, the cat, Olivia, and Ted is a sort of uh, a very close and and fundamental bond. Um, it's it's quite an upsetting book, you know. It's it's there are there are there are some things in it that one wish didn't exist in the world, and I suppose the cat, Olivia, performs the function in the book that she sort of performs for Ted as well, which is that she brings a little comfort and and, and humor and and joy into into what is quite a bleak story i'm also it's just i've always been more not morbidly but kind of terrified and fascinated by the lake sammamish murders that um ted bundy committed um you know just I'm, i'm sure you're familiar but just in case people aren't very briefly it's um uh, it was a 1974 hot day at this lake in in Washington State. Thousands of people on the, on the lake shore, literally crowds of families and picnickers and day trippers and everything. And uh, first of all, I think it was Janice Ott first. So uh, this 
the last time she was seen was a, a man with a, his arm in a sling asking her to come and help him move his boat because he'd hurt his arm. And she was never seen again. About two hours later, um, Denise Nasland was uh, stopped on her way to the restroom and but by a man with his arm in a sling. And their remains were found um, two, uh, uh, two months later uh, in September on a hillside um, nearby. There's something so greedy and barbaric about it. Um, the complete impunity with which this per- person can take not only one, but two lives. It's just, there's so much poignancy in it. You know, these women were killed because they were trying to help someone they thought was hurt. That's why they died. It's just one of those things that the mind recoils from, but can't help, can't help, you know, reverting to. The story of Ted Bundy is so full of plot twists that actually if, if you put it in your own novel, your editor would probably tell you to cut it because it wasn't believable. But um, he he escaped from prison twice. And then later, as he's, when he was on death row, he was asked by the FBI to uh, help to try and gain some insight into the mind of uh, Gary, well, well who, what they, the person they came to know was Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer, who killed so many women in Washington state that he, he lost count. And, and the, the best estimate is 71. 71 women died over the course of the, um, during the 80s and 90s. Anyway, they, so they, they, on death row, they, t- they came to, to Bundy, to, hoping for two things. One, um, that he would unburden himself and give some kind of insight into the Green River Killer's psychology, which might help them catch him, but also perhaps that in asking him to talk objectively about crime, they were hoping basically to get the location of more bodies from him before he was sent to the chair. There's a detail about the bodies and how they're found on the hillside that I put in Needless Street. I don't know if you remember it. it it's a very, it occupies a very sort of deep, cold place in my head, this this thought. So when they found the, the scavengers had obviously had, there'd been lots of activity on, on the bodies and the recovery of the, you know, crime scene artifacts were had to be quite unusual. So there was like coyote feces with um, human finger bones in it. And then um, there, a bird's nest, which was woven out of go- golden women's hair, um, which they had to collect. And it's sort of, it's one of those things you think, how long did it take the birds to learn how to do that, to learn how to use human hair? So the, these things these things are, are sort of at the heart of the book. I do think as a writer, I sort of am, am quite attracted to the unthinkable, you know. I think that I, I feel compelled to look these sort of things in, in the face. And also try and, f- I think, I would hope that Needless Street isn't just horror. I think it's got compassion in it too I, I think that horror I think horror actually can't really exist without compassion how do you feel horrified if you if you don't empathize you know well that's the thing that I've been saying since I started this show really that I, I have this theory that much like comedy horror is more frightening just like comedy is funnier if you care in the first place um, oh yes I have very little time or patience for horror novels which are just unremittingly bleak. Yeah. You need something, not necessarily to lighten it necessarily, but to give like a a depth and a a kind of human texture to it, I suppose, sometimes. And this book very much does that. But I'm really glad that you've leapt in there with with references (laughs) to Ted Bundy and stuff because it's kind of set the tone because week on week with this show, I try and take very different approaches to what horror is. You know, last week... I spoke to Angela Slatter, whose novel oh. is about mermaids, and it's a kind of dark fantasy. Before that, I spoke to Bethany Cliff, who, whose novel is a kind of post-pandemic 
survival story. Yes. And I have skirted for a while the edges of what constitutes horror. And then with, with Needless Street, it feels like we've come to the absolute bullseye of the genre. As well as everything else that it is, it is very much a horror novel. And I like that. Yeah, me too. Like horror is always treated as sort of like the uh, the ugly younger cousin, but it's you know it's it's got, it's a genre with a huge amount of scope to say incredibly, uh, incredibly subtle and nuanced and meaningful things. Um, it's yeah, no, I agree with that. Obviously, I've read all three of your novels. So you began with Raw Blood, then yes. you wrote released Little Eve. And now you've released Last House or Needless Street or whatever you want to call it. And this novel is set in, I mean, I don't know if it's very much the present day, but it is set in in a contemporary setting. Um, Whereas your previous work has been, to some degree, historical gothic. Yes. Um, See, and already there, we're getting away, we're putting those caveats in, you know, it's it's not horror, it's historical gothic, etc., and I've read your responses in previous interviews where you've talked about historical fiction being perhaps a pejorative term. Mm. What did you mean by that? And have you taken an active kind of alternative stance to this? Or was it was it a, a calculated thing to think, right, I'm going to move away from period pieces? I definitely made a decision that I wanted to make a departure. It was partly it was partly like um involved in like personal circumstances. It was a time of like huge upheaval in my own life. And I think it was a sort of last stab, a last like grand, almost like a grand sort of last go at doing something, doing something really special that I, you know, that with, with you know with that with a plot with plot and with and and with the form, I, I think that perhaps there's there's a sort of safety for, for me or there was in lingering in the historic gothic because it's it's got a sort of pedigree to it as it were and. But I decided I didn't. I I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to write the the most extreme and, to be honest, if, if we're being real, quite most bonkers uh, book I possibly could. Something that really challenged me and challenged the reader, and and to let my let my imagination really run riot instead of trying to produce what what sort of like a, pl- a platonic ideal of a gothic novel, you know. Mm-hmm. The landscapes of my novels are always places, always places that mean a lot to me somehow in a personal way. So um, my parents have a house on Dartmoor and that's the setting of my first novel. And, that, you know, when we were, I was growing up in Madagascar and Kenya and Yemen and Morocco, Dartmoor was where we went every summer. It was so exotic. It seemed so different to, to everything I'd ever known in the tropics, you know, these like big, wild landscapes with big sky and wild ponies I just had never seen anything like it so that you know that that became the natural setting for my first book and um my mother uh, as for Little Eve my my mother was born in Eyre in Scotland in the Highlands she I think she left when she was four but there's this great longing in her and this great sort of sense of of having departed from something that she never knew so Scotland is a sort of nostalgia for a time she never had if you will and for that novel, it seemed not just in terms of the plot, but it, it seemed a natural that nostalgia and that longing and that sort of like affinity for the for the land seemed seemed to fit right into Little Eve thematically. But I was born in Washington D.C. I grew up, I, you know, up until recently, I'd probably lived more in America than I have in in the UK, despite talking like this. Um, but so I think I felt like I wanted to access a different part of my experience. Um, and that's that's where Needless Street 
sort of came from. Before we get into the house on Needless Street, I've got to ask you, like, you've lived in all these places mm. and you've written three novels in three very distinctive locales. Where's the scariest place you've lived? Which one, which one was the richest for horror purposes? I was talking about that house, my parents' um, house on Dartmoor, wasn't I? Um, <sighs> Dartmoor is very full of ghosts, you know. I, 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 let me put this out front, though. I, I don't... I don't believe in ghosts, but I'm absolutely terrified of them, if that makes sense. You're speaking to the choir here. You are. I yes. am. Very... <laughs> I, I, th- I think I, I believe really sincerely and fundamentally in p- people's experience of seeing ghosts, whether I believe in them or not. And um, when, uh, so in this cottage on Dartmoor was um, thick stone walls, like six foot thick um, granite. Like a, and there'd been, there'd been a building on that site since the Doomsday Book. So very, very old, huge fireplaces, but quite sort of lo- low ceilings. And it was just like, yeah, it was just, it was, it was like a little, it had been a little farmhouse. But this only started when I was 13. But from 13 onwards, every time I went to sleep in my room, which is above the oldest part of the house, I would wake in the night with a hand in the small of my back pushing me out of bed. I'd fall on the floor. Um, it's the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced. It's because it, it's not it's not fear that it's not fear that has any rational solution. That fear that's like in your amygdala, it's the it's the old ancient primeval fear of our ancestors in the dark. So every night I'd I'd, I'd start the night in my bed and end up in my sister's room. And uh, in my 20s, I think it was just, do you know what, the invention of Google, or the, the, the adoption of Google, has really solved a lot of, <laughs> kind of, has solved a lot of problems. Because once, once I could sort of Google it, um, it was, became obvious that it was, uh, I think it's called hypnagogic. Hypnagogia, yeah. Hip, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still get them, actually, but now I know what they are. So it's, 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 it's taken the air out of it a little bit. But um, it, if I was to fictionalise it, I suppose, which I have done in a way, it would be, you know, it would have all of those things that ghost stories tend to carry within them about, you know, adolescence and growing up and change and and um, anxiety about the unknown, the dark. It's very, you know, thematically rich. I, I feel like I sort of see that experience on, on about six levels simultaneously now. Um, but I, 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 I really have forgotten about that, I think. And then 10 years later, or it must have been more than that, but when I started to write Raw Blood, that was what came out, was that was a version of that story, or at least a version that contained that fear. Uh, you know, reading Gothic fiction and reading horror stories, actually, was a huge, like, road to Damascus moment, really, because I, I, I realised, like, this is where you put that feeling. This is how you cage that fear. This is the right, this is the proper vehicle for it. This is how it finds its proper channel. That brings us nicely to the, the titular house on Needless Street. It really is quite the den of horrors. And I suppose my first question is, why why not a mansion or a log cabin or a place in a tiny town like the Marston House in Salem's Lot? Why this nondescript house on a dead-end street? Well, do you think there's something terrifying about, um, you know, the pairing of evil and banality? Like... There's there's something much more frightening about evil that, or, or horror that happens in circumstances that resemble all the ordinary because it it invades our 
our psyche and punctures our feeling of safety that, you know, this could never happen here. I mean, also, it's, it's not really suburbia, but it's a sort of nice, quiet neighbourhood street. <laughs> and there's, you know, in a way, there's nothing more ominous than a nice, quiet neighbourhood street. I mean, it's the very heart of American Gothic, isn't it? Like you say, you know, the white picket fence and, and, and the rot that is behind it. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I find streets that just end, and there, there, are, there are a couple of these in, in Washington, streets that just end some are somehow terrifying you know they, they should they should run on in a, in in a, in circuits like almost like blood vessels if they just stop there's a sort of a sense of slippage almost of the world not quite sitting quite right on its axis um and you know a, a suburban street ending just boom in a wild temperate rainforest i find is is the stuff of kind of you know very much the stuff of dark fantasy and that particular forest, I mean, the, the Great Woods in Washington, I mean, mm. that that is about as wild and unexplored as you can get in the so-called developed world, I suppose, isn't it? That's it, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. We don't have any wildernesses left. No, no. And Ted lives right on the edge of it. And there is a, there is a very apt metaphor in that, isn't there? <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that's it, exactly. The woods are... Um... You know, the, the perfect setting for, for you know, the in, inciting terror but, and dark deeds. But they're also, like, emotionally the perfect background for the protagonist, you know. And also they form a huge part of his inner life, as, you, as you'll remember, you know. There's, there's a sort of magical thinking that he performs in the forest. Yeah, there's a great line in it where um, one of the characters is, is, is following another character through the woods. And she realises and she says, you know, we're no longer in the part where people come to go for a walk. Yes. And it's like you realise that the forest beyond the forest, you know, the forest true, the forest proper. Um, and that is the, yeah, that's the heart of nightmares. And even in like, even in just, just little details, I find those giant, almost Jurassic looking ferns quite terrifying. Do you know the ones I mean? Mm-hmm, I do. They look like a normal fern, but they're like, seven times the size i just find it startling it, it again it's that sort of hint that everything is not quite as, as you know it i always think that there are places like that in the world um whether it's the, the ocean or whether it's the forest and it's just like the over, overriding feeling is you are not supposed to be here this is not for you you know you're go go home <laughs> but home in many ways in this novel is is a more frightening yes. proposition <laughs> yes, than exactly. the forest yeah yes. And, and the, the horrors and the terrors that occur in and around this house, they are, they are hidden and they are secret. And as I said, this is a novel that's all about secrets and each one is entwined with the others. Though this book very much has a tone all of its own and it, it's kind of reductive to compare it to anything, if I was to give like the listener an easy comparison to the way this story operates, I would say it's, it's as close as anything to something like one of the early good um, M. Night Shyamalan films. Oh, right, yes. Oh, yeah. And just like in those early Shyamalan films, everything we need to know to understand what's going on is always there in front of us. Right. And I've read it twice, and it's a great book to read twice because you see how it all works, and you know. But even though I can see how it works, and I can see that there's great skill in doing that, in, you know, in hiding the truth in plain sight, I still don't know how you've done it. How do you know when you've given away enough to hook us, but not too much to, to spoil it? How, how do you manage that situation? 
Well, it, it's exhausting, actually. It, I think this is the most difficult thing, you know, artistically and creatively, and just in terms of pure graft that I've, I've ever done. And you, it requires you writing in three different ways simultaneously in parallel, um, which is, you know, creating the story, also um, stepping back and putting yourself directly into the reader's shoes and having to having to experience what they're experiencing and, and, and therefore understand where you've taken them to and how much information you've given them, which I find quite exhausting because the effort of doing that, like, imaginatively, you know the book so well, it's quite intense. You have to see it with new eyes, basically, with reader's eyes. And for some reason, it's, it's one of the hardest things to do when, when obviously you've been staring at the same you know, bloody word file for three months solid. But I think one of my huge um, objectives with this book was, and I, I was really, thank you so much for what you said. That that means a lot. I Because it was really important to me that the, uh, the so-called twist or, you know, the, the revealing of the architecture, as it were, be something that inspires in the reader the same feeling inspired in me when I realised what the subject matter was of, of the book, which was a sort of awe at how amazing the universe and and the world is. But it shouldn't rip the rug out from under anyone. It should be, it should be like an opening out of glad realisation, not a feeling of having been duped or tricked. It shouldn't, I would hope that people connect with it in a, in a sort of like, um, like joyful and amazed manner. Because it's an extraordinary sort of thing that I found, you know, that I, I found this this strange little, like, wrinkle in the matrix, if you will, <laughs> in the world. Um, and I I really wanted to convey the the wonder of what, you know, life and human organisms are capable of. Right, so you mentioned writing in, in different ways, um, mm, from different mm. perspectives, your, your, your perspective, the reader's perspective. The other thing that you have to consider when, mm. when, when reading this is that you've had to write from some very different character perspectives. And yes. th- this book concerns and is kind of told via a number of very disordered minds. Yes. And each mind is disturbed in its own unique way. So <laughs> this is where we are tiptoeing very like, neatly <laughs> yeah. through. Go on, I believe in you. How do you go about, first of all, creating such fractured, chaotic perspectives? And then how do you maintain a consistency with them? It's interesting, isn't it? I think, funnily enough, I was talking to someone, well, you know, so I was signing the 1700 books, so you have time for a chat and you probably quite need one. So um, I was talking to my editor about this today and we're like, it's so funny as a writer because you, you do walk a sort of tightrope between creating with a mindful hand and like organizing with, with your, with your right brain and also just letting the darkness underneath you take shape and, and feed into it. So quite often you don't realize where your impulses come from and they some and sometimes someone points out oh but you used to have a black cat or but you're blind in one eye and you're, I'm like oh, oh um but so with this with that particular aspect of it I trained as an actor you know that was actually what I wanted to do for my my most of my life I, I becoming a writer didn't really come into come and in, come into consideration until until much later um and I went to drama school in New York um and it was I think the 
the way that actors create character is really useful for a novelist. And I, I found, and as you, as you said, like it's, I found that I have gravitated towards stories that are told uh, through first-person narrative voice, like monologues, really. It's, it's a bit like found footage, isn't it? The novel arises out of assembled pieces of, of yes. information. Yeah. And I d- definitely think that um, little things like uh, remembering what your character's objective is. What do, what do they want? What do they need? What's in their way? It's just really simple stuff, but it really helps in keeping you, keeping your, you footed firmly in the novel. Um, and and making sure that the characters always have really urgent and really important goals and impediments. I think I think that was a part of it. I think the voice that everyone is going to really take to heart in this novel is Olivia the Cat. Mm. And you mentioned before that arose from this interest in the bond between bad people and their pets. Yes, yes. Um, but Olivia the Cat has such a unique sort of voice and, and a tone. Yes. She, she's kind of like sits in a strange hinterland between a feline perspective and a human perspective. Yes. How, yes. how do you develop the mind of this strange feline? It's funny, isn't it? Because when in writing about animals, you're never really writing about the mind of the animal. You're writing about what the human perspective on the mind of the animal might be. You're writing, it's just anthropomorphism, isn't it? Um, I think we, cats are a particularly... Uh, particularly good candidates for this because they have such enigmatic faces. They have faces that don't register feeling in the ways that are do. Their their cues are totally different. So they present themselves as as quite a strong, like slightly alien psyche. And I mean, Olivia the cat is. It's it's always going to be about, and again, it's a bit like she performs a function in the book that she also performs for Ted in the story which is that she gives you, it's it's more about what we need from her than about what a, a, an actual cat might be saying or doing. We have no idea what cats are actually like. I mean, it, it's, it, it, it would, it's probably completely baffling. I don't think we'll ever know. So all we can do is, um, it's always like a sort of, like a hymn in praise to the bond between human and cat. And her, the humanness of her is imposed by me, the writer. But I think not that, no less the valuable for it, if you know what I mean. Like for me, it was a very a part of a, another sort of departure because <laughs> I actually love. I, I'm, you know, I'm a really big fan of like certain like comic American essayists like David Sedaris and things like that. And so for me <laughs> to channel that very slightly was oh, it was such a such a joy, such fun. It's it's not something I've ever really done before in my novels. It was a a new thing for me, and and just for that sake, it was kind of wonderful. I was very proud of her, you know, um, when I'd when I'd worked out when I'd worked out the kinks on her, you know. Yeah, and there's such sweetness in in the midst of this quite horrendous novel. Mm-mm. I mean, and, and yeah, and she is this stop valve because it is it is a surprisingly horrible novel. Um, and this goes back to what I was saying before about like I've read I read a lot of horror, but I've mm. read so much horror, which is largely through market demand, has been tinged mm. by other genres, or mm. you know has been mitigated or diluted by other genres. It's quite rare these days to read a mainstream big release horror novel that is that is this horrible. Yes, I mean there's there's a lot of quite appalling cruelty perpetrated on children. Yes. 
And this is where we can be thankful that we're doing a horror podcast for a horror audience because we can assume a degree of resilience. But it, but yeah, it's it's horrific stuff. And and then so first up, word you, you mentioned that you like to write about the unspeakable. So is this stuff about violence and and horror imposed on children? Is that your version of the unspeakable or your version of pushing the envelope? I, I think it is. You know, for me personally, one of those, yeah, one of those acts that almost sort of create creates a sort of hole in the fabric of the universe if you will it's the end of the line uh, as it were for cruelty and and human degradation so so yes it, I, I think it one of the worst things that people can do to other people and I think it, it does come up again someone else pointed this out to me <laughs> so, so unobservant sometimes of my own work but it, it is present in my in all three of my books to some degree yeah um and I think it's because horror is, I think horror is a sort of recuperative act, you know. It's got this ability to plumb the depths, uh, you know, explore and sort of redeem um, in a way in a way that we don't get in real life, you know. Fiction make, has to make more sense than life, otherwise it doesn't work. There, there's an impulse to order and, and some plot logic which doesn't happen in the, in the real world. In the real world, you know, atrocities happen willy-nilly and arbitrarily and no one knows why and there's no resolution. Uh, whereas if you're doing it in a book, there's there's a sort of comforting linear symmetry to the fact that you can that you that you've got like reasons and plot and thematic echoes. So I think it I think it's a sort of it, it's almost a, like a, a healing impulse. I know that sounds strange maybe. Well, no, not at all, because as you say in the afterword to this book, and, and the afterword itself nearly brought me to tears for reasons we can't go into without giving spoilers oh, yeah. away. But you, you mentioned in the afterword that this is a story um, about survival disguised yes. as horror. Yes. Um, and exactly whose survival and from what we won't go into. But a lot of that, either as victim or perpetrator, falls on Ted, the... Yeah the man who lives in this house at the end of Needless Street. And Ted is very disturbed. And Ted is seemingly monstrous, but yes. still in a very, I suppose, sympathetic way. He reminds me quite a lot, actually, of, um, I don't know if you've ever read it, but Spider by Patrick McGrath. Yes, that's such a, that's such a good um, comparison. Yeah. Yeah, and it's that same fractured lens on the world that he offers mm, and stuff mm, like mm, that. Mm. Was he always someone that you felt a degree of sympathy towards, or did that develop as you were writing him? Um, in order to spend so much time with him, and you you do for the the mechanics of of the book demand it, it he can't just be a monster. And there's sort of things he things he things he does and says which are quite charming and relatable. Like he loves food, <laughs> he very much enjoys making eccentric recipes, and he loves his cat. I think I tried to show more in terms of like execution and and, and stylistically a sort of very uh, a very he has a very strange way of processing the world. You, I, I always felt super sympathy for him, yes, and I, and I but I think that's part of part of the sort of dreadful pact you're asking the reader to engage on is like, can you feel for this person knowing what you know? Um, uh, or, or, or what it, or knowing what is being suggested, yeah. <laughs> so, 
you know, genre has a sort of function, doesn't it? You make a compact with the reader or the viewer, like when the jaunty music comes on um, at the beginning of the film and you get like an aerial shot of New York and a voiceover going, that was the summer when we da-da-da-da. You're like, oh, a bit of romantic comedy, brilliant. And and you 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 trust the film from then on to obey the rules of the romantic romantic comedy and 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 organize itself and resolve in that way. Um, what I really wanted to do with Needless Street was play with those expectations um, in a meaningful way. I think it breaks the compact, uh, but I hope it breaks it deservedly. If that makes sense. Yes, yes, it's uh, it certainly does something new and. That brings me to the, the the big question at the heart of this, which is the one that I've been thinking about how to ask. <laughs> so, right, bit of a preamble. I interviewed um, an author called Jonathan Sims a few months ago. Jonathan Sims wrote a book called 13 Stories, and he's the creator of a podcast called The Magnus Archives, which is mm. massive. Um, and he he said this thing this answer that kind of got a lot of traction from my listeners. And he simply said that mental illness is not scary. So stop it. Mm, mm. And what, what he meant by that in context is that, you know, treating mentally ill people as if they are inherently dangerous, the old like mad ax man trope, etc., is cruel and reductive and essentially silly. Now you do the exact opposite of that in this novel, but you still, run headlong into a confrontation with mental illness as a source of terror. So did you have any concerns about reaction, about being seen as exploitative, about the the reductive way it had been done in the past in other media? I really wanted to to do something that um, redressed that in some way, because I I agree, and I did a huge amount of research for this, um, because I was so determined that as someone who had not had those experiences that I reflected as best I could in in an authentic and 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 truthful fashion the the you know the manifestations and characteristics of trauma yeah i mean i I thought about it of course i did i these are not um things that i I have undergone, but I think if you're going to do that. Talk to people who have gone through that. And I did lots of interviews and, you know, read a lot of books. And one of the questions I asked, you know, one of of the people I spoke to who who helped me hugely in in creating this book was, what would you like people to know that isn't generally reflected in the the common representations of mental illness in, in, you know, in our modern culture? And he said something so beautiful, which I don't even know if I can say. Um, I don't think I can say it, actually. Sorry. All I'm saying is uh, my research gave me a sense of awe and extreme respect for the people who um, come through these traumas and live to live and survive and live with it every day. I don't know... there are some things that go so deep, you know. I don't think there's the sense of recovery is is, a, is ever a really useful word in describing these things. It's it's more just learning to make peace, and and learning to live with with, with it in, as as a companion, you know. Yeah. But yes, I, look, I mean, I I had huge concerns about it. I, my, my concerns got got stronger the more I researched and the more sort of desperately compassionate and protective I felt towards people who and and you know sufferers of of um these you know terrible terrible acts uh, survivors of these terrible acts 
So yeah, it is something I think about. Just all I can all I can say is I just hope I got it right because that's the that's my only duty, isn't it? Really. Obviously, I do not, you know, share any of these life experiences either. But all I can say is it read as an authentic and well-intentioned piece of writing. I hope so. But there's certainly not even a hint of exploitation in there. So I'm going to come full circle because you be- mm-hmm. you began with an answer about a serial killer. Yes. I'm a man who has an unhealthy interest in serial killers, as, you know, so many of us who dabble in, the, in dark fiction do. Uh, mm-hmm. My wife it at all but there you have it <laughs> all the way through this i just kept thinking ed gein really that's interesting yes i think that's I, I think that's a good call i think people may not know that ed gein as they called him the Plainfield ghoul was a man mm. who um was as much a victim of of his own life as a as a, as a monster and certain relationships in this novel with certain other people strongly evoke that. But your answer suggests to me that wasn't in the front of your mind as you were writing this. I didn't have him specifically in mind, no. But I think that's, now, now that you say that, that seems an excellent example of what we're talking about, about, about you know, someone whose, uh, you know, actions are so incredibly depraved and, and, and violent and, and horrific but also only per, only move it, you know he's he's part of a circle of per, of perpetration of these cruelties that just passes things on and per, and self perpetuates isn't he so yes no that's a really good um that's a really really good comparison i, I really i really hadn't thought of that i'm really glad you said it because now i have <laughs> Well, there we go. So we began with Ted Bundy. We ended with Ed Gein. That's nice. what I call a conversation. <laughs> I'll, I'll sign off, if that's okay, with my, my four rapid-fire questions I ask each guest. Yes. So throw your answers at me. Tip of the tongue type stuff, yeah? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Number one, what was your gateway to horror? Um, uh, Stephen King was my gateway to horror. It was the first horror I ever read, and it uh, formed my expectations of horror being something that could exist as Stephen King's horror often does in communities instead of at the uh, you know at, at the end of the road or in a lonely house at the top of a hill or a Dracula's castle you know horror that that breeds in small towns that's a beautiful answer I think you're the fourth person on the bounce to say Stephen King which just to me is testament to how just quite how deep that man's roots go into our contemporary culture uh question two if you could recommend one book for our listeners to read, what would it be and why? Okay, I would like to recommend a true crime book called The Five. About Jack the Ripper? Yes. I've heard of it. Carry on, sorry, I interrupted. Carry on. No, no, don't worry at all. Have you read it? I haven't. Is it Hayley Rubenfeld or something? Hayley Rubenhall, yes, exactly. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those extraordinary books that changed my perspective not only on that particular set of crimes but also on the way to report and deal with and treat those crimes if you will i absolutely extraordinary um it's not a uh, it's not really a spoiler as i i think everyone pretty much knows that they all end up dead um but uh the last chapter is just a list of 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 everything they had in their pockets Oh wow! And you read through this list. And it's like a bit of sealing wax, a button, a picture of her, ki- a picture of her child, and it. I mean, after all of this masterful scholarly research, it just it it 
pulls your heart out from your chest. Um, I cried. I, I cried. It's it's really moving, and it's the it's the it's the absolute best example of the new crime writing impulse, which is to focus on victimology and victims instead of instead of um, glamorizing the perpetrator and giving them more air. That is so spot on. Like literally, I want to get Haley on the show because. I want to do my tiny little bit to redress the response she got to that book. Oh, my because God, I know. It just, like, for people who don't know, she, she wrote this, as you say, masterful piece of scholarly work, and then people were genuinely upset, largely speaking men, because it didn't focus enough on Jack the Ripper. And this morning, I finished watching on Netflix the four-part documentary on the Night Stalker, because I find Richard Ramirez the most terrifying serial killer out there. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. As someone who's interested in this subject, I was taken aback by how much, by shifting the emphasis from the killer to the victims and the the people trying to catch him, it makes you realise how we turn these arseholes into kind of empty vessels and we fetishise them, you know? Um, And I just find it such a strange impulse to, to make these people the hero of the story. It's weird. It's really strange. I was talking to a psychotherapist friend of mine about this exact thing. And she said, well, you know, when we're confronted with an anomaly in our culture, or a violent, sadistic, serial killing psychopath is an anomaly, it's something we don't know how to frame or contain in a community, as it can't be. And she says there are three things you got you can do when, when something is um, dangerous, frightening, and, and actively a threat to you. You can run away from it, or you can kill it, or you can try and make friends with it. And I think there's a sort of this this sort of it's almost like a misfiring synapse where we're, we're sort of we delve deeper into them in order perhaps to get like almost inoculated against the horror. Um, if I find if I investigate this enough or if I read enough or if I know enough about these terrible crimes, that mean, that means it can't get me. Yeah, makes sense. But I still find it weird. Oh no! It's yeah. I mean, I I agree with that. But I think a lot of people are just desperate, desperately compelled by it without hero worshiping as well, because it is just it, you, it's just it's inexplicable, you know. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, the, the, I'm being a bit of a hypocrite because I'm somebody who's interested in this stuff, but I just too, I don't feel the need to make the killer the most interesting part of the story but yeah no but you're right you're right that's like you're right because you know that's historically been the way it happens and it puts what's usually a white man's uh experience at the as the perpetrator it privileges his experience over the probably very vulnerable set of people who he preyed on it's another iteration of the way society commodifies and makes makes people disposable you know particularly uh, women and children and Madness, essentially. Um, essentially. <laughs> so what was the, give us the name of the book again, because we've moved on the a bit. The Five by Hayley Rubenhold. Excellent. That goes on the show notes, so you can look that up if you, if you haven't quite got it audibly. Question the third. What single piece of advice would you give to a fledgling author? Um, so I think in writing horror, um, the, the, the best horror writers... I think are really frightened of frightened of of everything. <laughs> you don't write horror because you because you're immune to fear. You write horror because you're really scared. Um, so I think the best advice I could give is to delve deep and look at what really scares you. And if you can sit with that fear 
and let it become your companion and let it come into the writing and you, you you can share it. You can share it with the reader. I mean, that's what reading and write and novel novel writing are, aren't they? There's this sort of like extended act of of, of empathy. Um, Telepathy almost. Yes, it is, isn't it? It's it's really peculiar that someone like you know the person like the person who wrote Dracula can make you feel something. <laughs> yeah. You know, when they died many years ago, and um, so it, the page is very porous in that way. You know, you, if you're afraid, they'll be afraid. So the key is, is, is learning how to write that fear without other things getting in the way. That is a great answer. Um, and it leads, it leads perfectly into my final closing question, which <laughs> is, what truly scares you? This is circling back to what we were talking about, about, you know, that experience of the hand in the small of my back pushing me out of bed. There is a sense of a fear which is composed of nothing but fear itself. So just you're, you're afraid, not of anything tangible, specific or corporeal, but because the world is dark and vast and indifferent to you, you know, Um like that's again like the forest in Needle Street. The forest doesn't care. The forest doesn't care what you want or what you had planned. It um it's a massive kind of autonomous force of its own. And I think that is frightening, isn't it? To look at how small you are in the great, great scheme of things. Um so that I find that really frightening. Well, I mean that if it worked for Lovecraft, I mean it works for me. Well, I mean that is a suitably profound and bleak way to end this oh, conversation good. i've ruined everyone's evenings now brilliant i think we've managed to somehow kind of walk the maze there without giving away anything i think so listeners if you do think we've given away something trust me we haven't um <laughs> at any point where you think you know what was happening i guarantee you don't and if you say you do you're a liar um <laughs> And I wish you all the best in the world for it. But all I can say for now, Katrina Ward, is thanks for talking scared. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well then, if you aren't intrigued by now, then quite frankly, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Seriously, people, this book is a cracker. I mean, not to repeat myself ad nauseum, but it's sad, it's funny, it's frightening, and most of all, it's got the absolutely crucial ingredient. It's mysterious. I'd like to talk at length about it, but I can't. Time and spoilers don't allow that. But if you've read Last House on Needless Street, please email me with your thoughts. I I need to talk about this book with another reader. Also, if you're annoyed that Kat held back what she was told by that person she spoke to during her research, then trust me, you don't want to know yet. She does include it in the afterword, and I've got to say, once you read the novel, the afterword itself packs quite the emotional punch. Some secrets are worth keeping. Go into this book as much as you can, knowing nothing. Speaking of emotional punch, though, I hope my warning at the start was enough to cover the amount we spoke about, well, frankly, violence towards women. Like I say, it's been a tough week for at least half the population, so I really wanted to avoid any notion of insensitivity or or worse, of exploiting what's happened here in the UK. 
it's tricky sometimes running a podcast about such dark topics and all I can do is is hope that my good intentions remain clear. So anyway, on a lighter note, what what else do we talk about this week? What what other books? Um, well, first of all, definitely check out Kat's other two novels, Raw Blood and Little Eve. They're really different from Needless Street, but they're both very compelling gothic tales. Raw Blood is very much an old-style gothic about a creepy house in the middle of Dartmoor uh, and a an evil entity that may or may not be haunting it. Little Eve, in particular, has a fantastically creepy sense of location. I'll be honest, in my opinion, neither hits the sheer heights of Needless Street, but that is saying a lot, and they are both really good reads. In terms of other books, you heard my thoughts on The Five there, uh, and I'd like to get Hayley Rubenhold on the show. There really are some complete cretins out there, as revealed by some of the reactions to that book. And there's just, it turns out there's nothing worse than a Jack the Ripper fanboy. Um, so Hayley, if you hear this, if anyone knows Hayley, point them in my direction. I'd like to be a corrective to that. But anyway, yeah, before I run the risk of alienating people further, let's just say that if you want to get in touch, then you can, as ever, via Twitter at TalkScaredPod. Or you can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Get in touch, let me know your thoughts on Needless Street or on any other reading you're doing at the moment. I'm also looking at the possibility of setting up a Patreon account because, well, frankly, this show is getting quite expensive to deliver week on week. Um, I have to go back to my full-time job fairly soon and things will only get harder. So if you enjoy the show, then I could do with a, a bit of help, I suppose. Obviously, you know, I'll always make it available free of charge. I don't want you thinking, oh, here we go. Another one where they start charging, another one is after money. It'll always be available free of charge because I love doing it. But do let me know what you would want from a Patreon membership. You know, um, merch, credits, more episodes, um, an unedited cut, for example. And trust me, you'd hear me putting my foot right in it every week. One thing I've considered is interviews with other kinds of horror writers. You know, film, TV, video games, etc. Let me know what you think because... I need help to make this as good as it could be, uh, but I really don't want to shortchange anyone. Anything else to tell you? I don't think so. Uh, Come back next week for one of my favourite conversations so far. It's with V.L. Valentine and her debut novel, The Plague Letters. It's just a lovely chat. Um, But until then, stroke more cats, tread carefully in the woods, Tell people using the not all men hashtag where to go. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared.